Social credit scores? That only happens in China and other communist countries. That would never happen here. Except that it is, and it's another weird lettered thing that the communists seem to be using to come after us, whether it's critical race theory, CRT, whether it's LGBTQPRYS, whatever. It's now ESG, and that stands for Environmental Social Governance. And it's a form of social credit scoring um, that is really causing the financial world to not really collapse, but it's not good. Um, I'm not an expert on it. I know that it's bad. We've been publishing a lot on it at 1819 News as far as uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, and these other asset management companies and how rather than investing for profit, which is their fiduciary duty, they're now investing in areas of, um, you know, things that would be environmentally beneficial according to who or socially beneficial according to who. And they're not making the money they're supposed to, but they're justifying it because of, you know, social causes and all this other stuff. And they're using people's money that don't necessarily believe in those things. So the whole thing is is crazy. And once again, the truth is so crazy. If you stand up and have the courage to say what's true, you look crazy. It seems like it's like some kind of plot out of a James Bond movie. Well, that's what we're diving into today. We've got Alan Mendenhall. Uh, who is an expert on this. He's down at Troy University doing some really innovative things. He's chock full of courage uh, and doing great stuff. And we couldn't be more proud to have him doing that right here in Alabama. We're going to dig into that today. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast where we are pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama with every podcast we produce. So today, no different. We're in pursuit of that free and flourishing Alabama with what I believe is one of the most important topics that isn't being talked about enough. We're talking about it on 1819 News. We know people are talking about it, but it's something that needs to reach the masses because uh, it's it's sheer insanity at the highest levels and the biggest institutions with the most money and all this other stuff. And it's ESG. What is ESG, Brian? It's another three-letter thing. CRT, LGBT, CRESG, and all these alphabet soup stuff. At the end of the day, it's social credit scores. People, whether you can get a loan or not, based on how um, liberally friendly you are or things like that is kind of the direction it's going. I'm not an expert on it. So what I'm doing is I'm bringing in someone who is an expert. I've got Alan Mendenhall here joining me. He's going to give you his bio because I don't know it, but I'm sure it's long and distinguished much more so than mine. Um, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Brian. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. And uh, this is an important topic. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, your career history, accolades, all oh, of those wow. fancy things. Well, I'm associate dean of the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University and okay. executive director of the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy. Okay. So in reverse order, I was uh, associate dean of the law school at Faulkner mm. University in Montgomery before that and uh, was executive director of something called the Blackstone and Burke Center for Law and Liberty. I was assistant attorney general under Luther Strange. I was a staff attorney for Chief Justice Roy Moore. And then I was in private practice in Atlanta before that. But I've always had one foot in the university. And uh, have taught at Huntington College, Troy, Auburn, numerous places. Wow, that's incredible. See, I knew he was distinguished, but I didn't even know about all the other stuff. I kind of, I met you when you were at Faulkner um, and then moving forward, I think you were, was Blackstone at Faulkner as well? It was, it was okay. at Faulkner. And anytime I hear Blackstone, I get excited. <laughs> and I think Blackstone is, and again, I'm totally derailing, but that's what I do. 
to me, Blackstone is almost one of the most important figures in us trying to get to a free and flourishing Alabama that people don't know about. Who's William Blackstone? And I point back to the scriptures for where our law should be based, right? And so I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, and I probably will be, but William Blackstone was a master of the, the English common law. He was kind of the, you know, that, and then we based our laws off of Blackstone's interpretation of English common law, for the most part, our legal system when we started the United States of America, which all pointed back to the general equity that you could pull out of Israel's civil code. And so you're like, is that a theocracy? No, it's just saying that God knows how the people should govern themselves. And he gives you examples of, hey, this is just and this isn't. This is just and this isn't. And so pulling from that wisdom, we created a legal system that really was rooted and based uh, in the Bible and English common law, which was based in the Bible when when Western you know, civilization was flourishing at its peak. That's what we were doing. And we are not doing that anymore. And we are crashing and burning. And I would love to get back to uh, a William Blackstone type vision for what our legal system should be. And that's not why you're here, though. And I just went on a, a random tangent because well, I heard Blackstone. I'll and say I, a I few words about Blackstone yeah. before we start into the subject for the day. But Sir William Blackstone was a, a Christian jurist and he taught uh, he taught in England and he gave a series of lectures that became commentaries on the laws of England. And those lectures were designed for young people pursuing the study of law, trying to inspire them to study law. That book became a bestseller in the United States, in America, during the founding era. And it was sort of the go-to treatise for practicing lawyers to determine what the common law was, because the United States, of course, incorporated yeah. the common law in, uh, from England into its states, and it took on a different character in the different colonies and then subsequently in the different states. But uh, Sir William Blackstone certainly is foundational to the jurisprudence yeah. of every state in our country and a uh, formative figure in uh, Anglo-American legal history. May, I'm going to get a hat that says, make William Blackstone cool again. <laughs> yeah. A lot of nerds would get that. People that aren't nerds, not so much. I fancy myself a Blackstone nerd. So anyway, uh, a co-friend of ours that is also a William Blackstone nerd is Matt Clark. He's one of our favorites. Uh, also another uh, attorney, um, super duper attorney guy. That's what you guys are. You guys are super duper attorney guys. To Matt's me. a great guy. Simple. Matt Matt's doing a great job with the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty. And I'm actually, uh, I, I chair the board of the Alabama Center for Beautiful. Law and Liberty. So Matt is a good friend and somebody that I work closely with. Good. And we also work very closely with him as well. Uh, he's our favorite constitutional lawyer to have come on and break down subjects. And um, he's actually come to our church and did a, a glorious presentation uh, where he went in and he basically broke down like the last three or four big Supreme Court decisions, you know, from a constitutional perspective, an originalist constitutionalist perspective, as well as a biblical perspective. And then he actually preached the gospel from that. And I'm like, how did you do that? It was amazing, right? Matt, Matt's was, an amazing person. And anyone who has not looked into what the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty is doing needs to do it right away. It is highly successful. Matt's doing an excellent job and having a real effect on actual matters out there in the yeah. world and doing great things. <clears throat> yeah, he is. Um, he's he, Right now, he's a one-man operation, and he single-handedly got UAB to rescind their vaccine mandates because of the work that he's doing, and he's doing it ad nauseum. He works his tail off. He works around the clock. And if you're rich and you're listening to this, you need to give Matt Clark money. I'm just going to say that. If you're rich, <laughs> I, give that man some that. money because he's doing great work. So. Well, again, uh, derailing is my favorite thing to do on the podcast, um, and so I will do that at least five or six more times before we finish. I am uber excited to have you on um, because of the work that you're doing. Um, 
uh, in Troy with the program that sprung up really to battle and push back against ESG. Um, and so before we dive into all of that, kind of you guys as a solution, talk to us about what the problem is. Like what, what is ESG scores? Where did it spring up and start to come from? Let's break down. What is the E? What is the S? What is the G? What is the, the D E I, which is funny because I would read that it was actually D I E and they're like, that's not a good acronym. Die. Yeah. Let's change it to D E I. And they, they moved it. But, um, Talk to us about the kind of the history of this movement. How long has it been going on? Well, it's it's been going on for at least 20 years, and people haven't really been paying attention until recently. So ESG, simply stated, stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And it's notoriously difficult to define because it plays a different role in different contexts. So you might refer to ESG as a framework for a particular corporation's strategy. This corporation's going to institute uh, ESG measures, and that means it's going to diversify its board of directors. It's going to stand for equity inclusion. It's going to give to social causes, whether they're LGBTQ or whether they're uh, gun control or whether they're uh, sort of pro-abortion, but it's going to stand for social causes or uh, it's going to stand for eco-friendly causes and those sorts of things. So that's one way of thinking about ESG. However, in the big picture, ESG evolved in the financial services and investment industry. And that's where it really took root. And so it's like an umbrella industry that is over all other kind of industries. So we're talking about investments and you have uh, asset management firms like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard that got incredibly wealthy investing state pension funds into ESG-friendly portfolios. And so what this means is that you have uh, asset management companies or other investors, and what they were doing was saying, we are going to screen out politically disfavored industries and try to create portfolios consisting of companies that are ESG-friendly. And that meant that we are going to try to not fund fossil fuels, stay out of oil and gas, stay out of firearms, stay out of anything that is sort of disfavored in in that sense. And uh, they began to do this. These, uh, These funds underperformed. And you have to think about the ethics behind this. So say you are just a uh, a public school teacher in Alabama. You're a Christian conservative and you're teaching school. Well, um, perhaps, I don't know, because I don't know what where the RSA is uh, investing its funds, but let's say let's say we'll use a different state. We'll use one of the states that we know used to use yeah. BlackRock. We, we just had several, several states divest from BlackRock. Um, Louisiana, the most recent was Missouri, Missouri. but yeah, there, there's several Texas and Florida. When Texas and Florida start doing stuff, people start following suit. Alabama still hasn't, we still haven't followed suit. Um, but there's a question remaining about where, whether we're using BlackRock, where are we investing in ESG? That's sort of up in the air. No one really knows right now. Somebody probably knows, but, um, it's not just general knowledge, but, um, say you're in one of these States and you're, uh, working in the public system you would want your pension money going into funds that would yield the most returns on investment because that's what you do in investment. Yeah. When I give somebody money to invest, I want them to put it in the place that yields the most returns. That's the entire purpose of investment. 
If I give somebody money and they take it and instead of putting it where they know it will make money, they go and give it to left-wing causes, go give it to companies that are supporting left-wing causes. That's not what I want with my money. That's a breach of the fiduciary duty. They're not giving me as much return on investment. Yeah. Well, that concept holds with what's going on with the state pension funds. The only difference is you have somebody that manages those uh, those that, that fund money, and then they're outsourcing the job. They're hiring yeah. these asset managers to go fund to to go uh, uh, invest, and they were investing in companies that had these sort of ESG ratings. Um, you can get off on so many tangents here when you start talking about ESG uh, because there are hundreds of companies that purport to do ESG ratings. It is an unregulated industry. So you can start up a company now that says it does ESG ratings and you can start rating companies. And that means that there's sort of ambiguity about what does it mean to even get a high ESG rating? I mean, the, the companies that purport to do it don't have sort of internal access into what these companies do. So you have misreporting, um, you have uh, all kinds of uh, sort of shady maneuverings, companies that really want to portray themselves as being in, in, environmentally friendly or we're standing for social justice or uh, uh, CSR, corporate social responsibility. We're standing for all these things, um, but there's no way to really hold anyone's feet to the fire. And we find that companies are basically saying whatever they have to say to get high ESG ratings so that people will invest in their companies. There are certain industries, like we mentioned earlier, you know, uh, some energy companies or oil and gas that are sort of off the table for ESG friendly. They're just not ex an acceptable industry. According but to but the they're bending standard. over backwards to be ESG anyway. It's like you're never, as a power company, you're never going to be ESG friendly. You're, you, you burn coal. You know what I mean? Like that, like to make energy, which is fantastic that they do that. Praise God they do that. And it's so stupid to pretend like there's all these other things that are, you know, and you look at the charts. And so you look at, say, the power company and the energy like that, that actually supplies us and what it is. It's and, and again, I could completely butcher this, but I believe it's like 80 or some some high percent. It's still coal. And we have like windmills and even hydroelectric. And again, I live over by Lake Martin. You see the dams all over the place and that produces some energy, but nothing like this. And guess what? If we didn't have this, this really bad ESG thing, which is coal. We wouldn't have power. We wouldn't have air conditioning. We wouldn't have heat. We wouldn't have lights. We wouldn't have anything that makes it living. And then we sit and demonize these people who are doing great work, um, you know, which the coal industry is not easy work either, doing amazing stuff so that we have power, so that we can have hospitals and we can have businesses. We can have all this stuff so that we can flourish. And then we demonize these people who are doing this good work. And then, and then what's weird, though, is that those companies that are doing that good work for us are like scared of this ESG stuff. And then they start to like, Hey, we need to, we need to get on board with that. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like when Chick-fil-A again, yeah, everyone's going to crucify me after this. When Chick-fil-A decided that they were going to like give the left an inch. Right. And they're like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't, you know, you use our philanthropic dollars for Christian things. Maybe we'll give it to some gay things. And then the left was like, that's not gay enough. Right. And that's what always happens. So the moment that you give the left an inch, they've now got you and they're just going to, they're going to like, it's never enough. And you're going to be in perpetual leftist repentance to the point where you crash and burn. And so I think people, especially industries that are never going to win it with ESG should be diametrically opposed to it rather than flirting with it and seeing if they can get some type of benefit anyway, ran over. So two points, the, the first goes to why that's still happening. Yeah. And the second will go to the energy point. So the first is why that's still happening. Well, these asset management companies that I just referred to BlackRock, Vanguard, state street, et cetera, yeah manage trillions 
and trillions of dollars worth of assets. I mean, they are so rich, it is astounding. They're richer than a lot of governments. And what they do is rather than divesting from companies like, say, fossil fuels or nuclear power or whatever it is, rather than divesting from those companies, what they do is they try to take them over and they try to buy as many shares as possible so that they can exercise their proxy powers to bully their corporate board of directors into moving that company to the left. So they are, I mean, it's actually, it's actually brilliant. I mean, it it is a political strategy. It is brilliant, but they are, they are, you know, they are, they are purporting to become owners when actually the beneficiaries of all this funds, they're managing other people's money, bear in mind. So technically the owners are all those thousands and tens of thousands of people who's whose money is being invested, but they are exercising their proxy powers standing in the place of those people to push these corporate boards to the left. And it is uh, masterful, but uh, very nefarious. It is a a breach of fiduciary duty to the people whose money is being invested. That's part of the reason why it's happening. There are people pushing back. Vivek Ramaswani has uh, started a company called Strive Asset Management that is trying to push back on this uh, through similar tactics, but trying to depoliticize the whole process rather than pushing it necessarily in a conservative direction. It's just yeah. trying to encourage corporations to, Hey, maximize your returns, earn profits. You're going to add value through to society by creating jobs and producing goods and services and innovating and doing these things that businesses do. You don't actually need to be political in order to give back to society. So that's yeah. one reason why it's happening now on the point of energy, because you have these so-called, what I've been calling disfavored industries, whether it's oil and gas or fossil fuels or nuclear, power, whatever it is, you are seeing a massive diversion of capital from the Western world, from Europe and the United States to our enemies, to Russia and China, because Russia and China are not going down this woke road. They will not be ESG friendly. And to the extent that they purport to be ESG friendly, you can't trust them. They will say anything to preserve their power. And so what happens when we have this conflict in Russia, uh, in Russia Ukraine emerge? Well, now Europe is in a massive energy crisis. It was already struggling before Russia, Ukraine, but because now Europe has basically pursuing ESG policies, voluntarily ceded its uh, its industries to other places. And now it's becoming reliant on countries that it's not on good terms with. Yeah, And the costs of electricity, the costs of, um, you know, any, any form of energy in Europe have just skyrocketed yeah, yeah. at a time when we're dealing with global inflation. And now we have sort of geopolitical conflicts that have fallen along fault lines that are really hurting Europe. And Europe is in a bad place. There will be places in Europe, which is obviously an advanced region of the world, one, yeah. one, one of the dominant regions. And there will be places this winter where people will be struggling to turn the lights on yep. because of ESG. Yeah. Yeah. It's it so like so many things that we've been reporting on at 1819 News, it doesn't seem like it's it can be real, right? Like this is so crazy. This seems like some nefarious plot out of a James Bond movie. This seems like, you know, and like what we're seeing all over the place from COVID, maybe some of the election integrity stuff. Again, people have their different thoughts on it, but the stuff that's just coming out is true. People have their theories that, you know, and they say the difference between a conspiracy theory and, and the truth is about six months right now. Uh, it's just, it's just been crazy to watch that. But the one thing that I think that conservatives do need to wake up on, and I'm not saying that we need to get into, you know, creating our own conservative ESG or something like that is 
is the fact that there is a group of people who is at war with our way of life and they are taking premeditated, very well thought out um, strategic steps to put an end to our way of life. And we're sitting back watching football and and being entertained. Meanwhile, there's a war being waged on us. I think it, it finds its roots all the way back with, you know, Karl Marx and Stalin and um, uh, who's the other guy, Lenin and all that stuff. When you do those and, and seeing communism moving into the West and communism is weaponizing all these different things. And we were having a conversation in the hallway earlier where it's like the ESG is like, it's like playing on people's um, desire to want to do good. Well, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, if my money, if you can make 10% and do something good, well, why not? Well, how about losing 1% and doing good? Is that good? And it's like, well, I mean, I guess. Yeah. If you believe that all these billionaires who are attending the Davos World Economic Forum are really in this to help the environment and to make the world a better place, then you are really, really gullible. Yeah. Uh, these people are some of the richest people in the world. And what they are doing is exploiting people's desire to do good. People want to invest their money in things that do good. People want to change the world. People want to make the world a better place. Everyone wants to feel good about where they're putting their money. And if you could say, oh, I'm making money, but in the process, I'm doing really good stuff, then yeah. that's going to make you feel good about yourself. And and these uh, these companies, and, um, and, and in particular, these major investment firms, asset management firms, are exploiting that basic human desire to do good. Yeah. And they're getting astronomically wealthy in the process of doing it. Now, on a free market, there are all kinds of ways you can conceive of innovations and be entrepreneurial and figure out ways of doing things that are new, that are environmentally friendly. There's nothing wrong with helping the environment. We all know that like the planet is, is something worth protecting. I'm a Christian and I believe that we should be good stewards of this earth that God created. We gave us dominion over the earth, Amen. but that means we need to take care of it too. Yeah. And it doesn't mean we can just, you know, yeah. destroy that which we were given, all the beauty which we were given. But there are ways of doing it. Now, on 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 a market, a lot of these kind of ESG friendly companies are this this these ESG oriented companies, I should say, um, would never survive. They they're underperforming and uh, they can't compete against these these other alternatives. So what you see happening is they band together and they try to institute regulations. This is what happened in Europe. All kinds of ESG disclosures, all kinds of government regulations. And now you're seeing that in the Biden administration. The Biden administration has, uh, has basically mandated every federal agency to figure out how to institute ESG DEI in all of its forms. So now you have the SEC uh, talking about mandatory ESG disclosures for companies and how they're going to report. You've got ESG requirements being proposed by the Department of Labor. You name it. It's every single department up and down trying to figure out how they can institutionalize this stuff. And guess what happens when it gets institutionalized in federal agencies? It's hard to put the genie back in the bottle, right? These agencies just grow and grow and grow and grow, and you can't just dismantle them. And they get populated by new people. They hire new employees. You have an army of uh, bureaucrats, and these things are very difficult to undo. And that's one way the left keeps winning in other areas, not just in ESG, but by institutionalizing things in the federal government. The, the larger it grows, the harder it is to undo yeah. 
they they have a game plan, a vision. So I would say they have a vision, a mission, and a, and a plan, right? And so anytime you start a business, you need mission, vision, plan, budget. Like, what are we going to do here? Well, they have mission, vision, plan, budget that has been in play for about 100 years now that is that is coming. And, and one of the things that you see, and, and again, conservatives that are listening to this that, that, that have um, wealth need to listen because – what the left is all willing to do, yes, they have ESG set up to um, prey on people's desire to do good, to do the ESG strategy. But what the left also has is their billionaires, their people who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, heavily invest in the strategy of you know, world conquest by communism is what I would call it. They don't call it that. It's probably something that sounds nicer. But that's what it is. They're on a world conquest to, to you know, when you talk about the World Economic Forum, you talk about Davos, you talk about um, New World Order, whatever. You, you say New World Order and everyone's like, oh, you know, it's your tinfoil hats. It's like, yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the, you can go to the World Economic Forum site and see what their plans are and what they're doing and the resources that they have behind doing it. They have and, and they're putting money behind it. I think one of the, the, the ones that I always talk about because of the work that I did with Lee Habib at American Private Radio, you look at National Public Radio. Probably one of the most influential media uh, companies in the world, uh, and not very many people even really know anything about it. Okay, it is a five hundred one c three foundation. It's an educational media foundation. Um, they have a five hundred one c three that's connected to a content production and distribution platform. And the brilliance of what they've discovered is that if people believe in what you're doing, they'll put money behind it. And what what NPR is doing is they're creating excellent, exceptional world-class content that hits the American middle and then moves them to the left on the political spectrum and towards, you know, secular humanism on the religious spectrum. Uh, Hollywood, same thing, billions and billions of dollars being dumped into content that hits the American middle and moves them left. Meanwhile, conservatives, all of our, you know, the, the, the bulk of media that like Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity or whatever, Fox news, it's, it's angry conservatives talking to other angry conservatives about how angry and conservative they are all day long. We figured out a way to monetize a feedback loop they're not creating content that that hits the American middle and moves them to the right with our great ideas. We have the truth on our side. We have way better ideas, but we're, we haven't figured out how to get it all working together to create a, a real movement. And so NPR, they have, they do $350 million a year is what their revenue is. 350 million a year. That's astounding. And everyone's like, thinks it's this big government subsidized thing. Well, it's not. It actually, there's, I think like six to 12%, depending on the year, comes from government, which is still like $35 million. It's still a lot of money. But the rest of it comes from like-minded philanthropists, universities, corporations, and pledge drives. That's where their money comes from. And so what you see is, you know, wealthy people seeing what NPR is doing. And it's like, wow, that is moving our mission, our gospel, if you will, our church, the leftist secular humanist church. They're getting it done. We're going to give money. Um, Ray Kroc's wife. Um, so I think Ray Kroc was more conservative. Ray Kroc's wife was not and when she died, she left $200 million to NPR. Here you go. Right? And then they they take that and they turn it into to cultural ROI. So, but those are people who are voluntarily saying, hey, I'm going to give you my money to do this thing. What ESG is doing is they're taking people's money that have no idea and then leveraging it to, to do things that they wouldn't want them to do. Now, that's right. And uh, a lot of businesses that may be populated by executives who are apolitical or who don't care so much sometimes don't mind ESG because it allows them to get away with things and uh, that 
to, to sort of conceal their underperformance. For example, on the G structure, the governance side, there's this shift from uh, shareholder to stakeholder governance. And uh, Milton Freeman popularized the, uh, the sort of shareholder model in the 1970s. He wrote a famous article for the New York Times in which he said, look, the purpose of corporations is to maximize returns on investment, to maximize profits for shareholders. That's what corporations do. And in so doing, they provide value to society. They yeah. do good things. And that has been sort of the, the standard of, for corporations for a long time. Now, the stakeholder model suggests that, no, corporations uh, don't just make profits. Um, corporations can contribute to the good of society, and we ought to measure the success of a corporation based on non-financials. And that can include how much a corporation contributes to the social good, however you defined it, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's, Know, LGBTQ rights or whether it's uh, pro-abortion policies and offering to uh, pay for your employees to get abortion if they go get yeah. them out of state or whatever it is. If your company is doing those things, then uh, then your, your company is actually meeting benchmarks. It's succeeding. Well, what that allows executives to do, some executives, some CEO may actually disagree with, it may be pro-life or maybe whatever, may, you know, maybe traditional marriage. But is able to say, well, we we are not generating the same profits as we did last year. We're losing revenue. We're so if we can redefine success to uh, include the giving to this cause or the giving to that cause or supporting this or that, then we can say, oh, we were successful this year. We didn't make as many profits as we did the previous year, but look at where our giving is and look at what we're doing to society. And since we are out here to... Uh, contribute to stakeholders rather than shareholders. And stakeholders is so ambiguous of a term. It can be broadly defined to be anybody, anybody yeah. who's impacted by, uh, and, and the environmental changes or whatever. Um, then they're able to redefine success entirely and say, Oh, we are actually succeeding. We're losing profits every year, but we are succeeding because we are hitting these, uh, stakeholder benchmarks rather than the shareholder benchmarks. Mm. And that's why you see a lot of companies kind of going along with it, even though their leadership may be uh, personally against it. And the other thing is a lot of this stuff comes up through HR, comes up through all these middle managers and uh, CEOs can kind of delegate or say, oh, you know, I don't want to be controversial. So I'll hire the experts to come do an audit, a diversity audit of our company or whatever it is. And uh, if the experts tell me we need this or that, then I'll defer to them. But it gives these CEOs cover. They don't actually have to take a stand. They yes. can just say, oh, I'm just doing what I'm told to do by the experts. Yeah. No, and I think that's it. And, uh, and CEOs and, and people who are in leadership in these positions are going to, you know, everything in the, in the pure profit driven world, you know, cause you do get down to that pure capitalism, pure, you know, pure, pure shareholder model. Um, and it's like theoretically, you know, in a perfect world that absolutely does work. But the problem is, is that you get into like, okay, path of least resistance makes the most money. Well, at some point, because of the turmoil that's going on, one of those CEOs somewhere is going to have to be like, mm, we're just going to have to experience this turbulence and get through it because at the other end of the turbulence is making, is making money again, because, yeah, ESG that, you know, again, we'll we'll take, you know, Bank of America or one of those, I forget which bank it was that gave Black Lives Matter like all that money, crazy stupid amount of money that they gave Black Lives Matter. And that was so that there wouldn't be turbulence because if they, they asked for the money and you said no, 
well, then they were going to hold you hostage and there was going to be people outside your headquarters with, you know, fires and, you know, whatever, you know, that that's what they do. And they hold you hostage and you're like, well, that would be really bad if, you know, CNN's out there with cameras and there's, you know, people with pitchforks and torches in front of the Bank of America thing. Well, let's just give them a hundred million dollars and, you know, then we'll, we'll get rid of it. Well, now you're being held hostage now, you know, and so it would have been better for that CEO to have courage and say, you know what, we're about to experience a little bit of turbulence, but on the other side of it, it's actually going to be more profitable. Yeah. Uh, corporations sometimes struggle to see long-term and that's yeah. partly because in our current environment, CEOs aren't around very long. It used yeah. to be you were CEO of a company. You were going to be there at least a decade, maybe two, you were in for the long haul, but now like university presidents are like college football coaches are like college athletic directors. These are sort of uh, revolving doors and yeah. someone can come in and they just look for the short term and do what they need to do and build their reputation. And then they're out and they leave the consequences in their wake. It's very short term thinking and uh, can be very destructive. Um, one thing you see from these ESG ratings companies, you see an argument that goes something like this. We need to save capitalism. Uh, if we don't step in and we don't become ESG friendly and we don't institute these rankings, then Governments will step in and begin regulating all of these things. Well, that's been proven to be untrue. The governments are stepping in to regulate, not because the the ESG friendly companies are are not not doing it themselves, not doing it themselves, but because when they do it, they are underperforming. They don't they don't yield returns on investment, and they don't bring what people are expecting them to bring. And there is a lot of dishonesty and unethical practices evolved. And this is a criticism of the left too, by the way. There are a lot yeah. of people on the left that say this needs to be a highly regulated industry because everyone's lying about ESG and all these big corporations are getting rich and rich and rich and all the billionaires are getting richer. This is a left wing uh, – uh, there's a left wing piece to this too, but it's just so concealed in the United yeah. States. I would love to get someone who's a more center left billionaire like Leon Cooperman. Do you know who he is? I don't. Brilliant. He's – um. I'm trying to think of that big stock show that the guy always goes crazy and he's, you know, what is the name of that show? Anyway, there's a, a show that's on cable TV where the dude, it's like mad money or something like that. He's always going and, and, and Leon Cooperman, who I've had the privilege of meeting and interviewing in his house, brilliant guy. Um, definitely. He's from New Jersey. He's got an incredible story of, you know, his parents were Polish immigrants and his father was a plumber in New York city and he grew up in the Bronx. I mean, as tough as it is with literally, you know, his first generation, he ends up going to college he was going to, he was working at Xerox and then he was going to go to school to be a dentist. And then whatever happens, he ends up in an investing school, gets his MBA from Columbia, goes on to um, get, uh, goes on to Goldman Sachs. And is at Goldman Sachs for a while, does really, really well there, you know, in a very entry level position, moves up, um, tries to get uh, Goldman Sachs to move into a different area of asset management that they weren't comfortable being in. And, you know, Merrill Lynch was doing it and all these other companies were doing it. He says, hey, man, we need to be in this. And so he finally talked him into it and they let him oversee it. And then it turned Goldman Sachs into what it is today. And then he wanted to get into hedge funds and Goldman Sachs, like we don't do hedge funds, but he couldn't break him of that. So he went and started his own family office, you know, became a billionaire. And then Goldman Sachs actually went to him and was like, okay, well, we want to get into hedge funds now. Can you help us? Right. And he, and he did. And he's, he's an amazing incredible story of what you can be in America. Literally the the son of a Polish immigrant plumber who's now worth, you know, $6 billion or whatever, and did it through good investing. Mm. Not, not the stuff we're talking about not here with ESG. I would love to hear uh, his opinion of what's going on because he's definitely not a right of center guy, but I guarantee you he's looking at this stuff, shaking his head like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, that's what's really fascinating is you find that when you <clears throat> ask people in the industry, you get 
a wide range of opinions as to what's going on. If you ask a politician, you're going to get the standard politician answer and they're going to give you whatever platform they're supposed to say, you know? Yeah. And, but if you ask the people in the industry, whether they're left, right, whatever, they have an opinion yeah. and there's a, a, a wide array of, of, of opinion on, on ESG and what it's actually doing. In fact, you have some people that no longer work from, for BlackRock that are doing the news circuits and saying, look, this is, this is a problem. This, this ESG stuff is being sold to you as this, yeah. but it's not, it's actually this and you need to watch out. And these people are on the left. Yeah, man. <clears throat> well, so, I mean, we could go on and on about, you know, the, the problems with, and I think I want to distill it down to its simplest form for what this would mean to normal average Alabamians that are listening to my podcast in its, in its purest form, ESG is social credit. And so it's literally, you know, if it, again, and you can correct me here, if it gets to its worst point where they would like it to go is, you know, okay, you know, Joe Powerline worker that lives in Alabama or, you know, guy that works wherever, you know, um, we, we got on your Facebook and, and, and saw that, you know, you posted a, a Donald Trump thing. Um, and we know that you want a mortgage and, you know, you make a hundred thousand dollars a year and you don't have any debts and you're a perfect financial candidate to give a loan. But we saw that Donald Trump post, so we're not going to give you a loan, right? Like, so that's that's social credit in its purest sense. Yeah, let's say ESG, the ESG movement were to continue unabated and it were yeah. to permeate society in the way that its proponents hope it will. Yeah. Then you could be a small town Alabama farmer going in to get a loan from your bank. And because this is all being done through financial services and institutions, you could go in to get a loan and they could say, oh, well, great. Tell us about your business. And you could tell them about your business plan and your strategic plan and your SWOT analysis and this and that. And they said, no, 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 no. Like, let, let, let me see your bylaws. I, I, I need to see um, where your board of directors contains you know, whatever diversity quota is required or we need to conduct a diversity audit of your uh, of your business. And you say, well, we're just a family, small family business. You know, we don't, we don't hire, you know, everybody in my family looks kind of like I do. And they say, well, you've got to change that, you know. If you want to get a loan for us, you've got to change that. Or, um, you know, you've got to change some sort of business practices. You're using uh, some type of timber or lumber when you need to be using this other kind. Or, you know, you, you're you not using solar-powered cars. You're using yeah. too much gas or whatever it is. However it may evolve, we don't know. But we're talking about people uh, being unable to get capital. And meanwhile, this is it's, – it's, it seems like – a big leap to say it, but meanwhile, this is, you know, a national security threat because this kind of stuff isn't happening in China. This stuff yeah. isn't happening in Russia where people are, 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 you know, that's where we're basically guaranteeing dependence on these other countries. And, you know, you hear the Biden administration talk a lot about infrastructure, this infrastructure has been, infra well, it's championing all these things that are making us reliant on other countries and we're actually building their infrastructure. I mean, this is basically ESG is basically a tax on ordinary Americans that is going to Russia and China. Mm. Crazy time to be alive. Crazy time to it be is. alive. And I think the the biggest thing that, you know, my audience needs to hear um, and, and I, and I try and say it week after week after week after week is that we've got to, you know, I love watching Alabama football and Auburn football. And, you know, I love those things. And, um, 
But man, in the last three years, I've watched one football game. You know, I haven't gone hunting. And again, I'm not saying that everyone has to give up hunting and, and football games. What I'm saying is, is I've been so focused on the fight that we have before us that I haven't had time to do those things because I also have seven children. And I think the first thing that we need to do is fathers need to be working and training up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They need to be focused on making sure that, you know, Christian paideia, that their, that their children love God and have character and are ready for what's coming because it's coming. And so we need to be preparing our children for those things. And between that and then, and then learning about all the stuff that's going on, um, I, I don't have time to do some of those things that I, that used to distract me or that I used to find fun. Now, one of the, the goals of 1819 though, is that I'm going to go find all this stuff and then I'm going to tell you guys so that you still have time to hunt and watch football. But with the information we give you, you know, the hope is that Alabamians will see what's happening and they'll act. Yeah. Right. And, and, and we believe very strongly that they will, because you have, you know, we want to, we want to shine a light on the darkness, but we also want to celebrate the things that are good because Alabama is an incredible state full of wonderful people. Uh, we've got incredible entrepreneurs here, incredible ministries here, incredible stuff like what you're doing that we want to shine the light on so that people are proud to be Alabamians. And if people are proud to be Alabamians, they're going to fight for their place. They're going to fight for their people in place. And then we're going to give them the information they need to fight for the place and the people that they're proud of. No, that's great. And the future, I believe, is bright for Alabama as we see the migration of people and businesses from blue states to red states. Yeah. People are going to Texas. People are going to Florida. We can't miss out. Yeah. We have to capture this moment. We still <clears throat> rank terribly on economic freedom indices. We are actually not very good when it comes to uh, uh, economic freedom and um, and and business opportunity. So uh, we need to capture this moment yeah. because otherwise it'll pass us by and we'll be ranking poorly again. You know, we, we tend to have this complex where we rank poorly and all these things. Well, we have the opportunity to, to be great yeah. on some. We're, on some we're really high on the corruption list in football. We do well in those areas and we're coming up yeah. in basketball. So I'd like, <laughs> I'd like some of these other things to be up at that level. One of the, the things I'll say on this is I forget what the terminology that they use. And it's almost like the religion of Alabama and the political you know elite in Alabama and, and great, great people that I like uh, in government. But it's kind of their thing. And anytime there's a thing, all the thing is, is a thing that allows the, the water faucet of money to start flowing so that people can start siphoning it off like education. We got to give teachers more money. Everybody loves teachers. Well, of course, everybody loves teachers. Well, if the teachers are complaining that means that they're going to go to their legislature. The AA is going to go to the legislature on their behalf and say, we need more money. Then they dump more money in. And then that, that money is gobbled up by the bureaucratic redundancy. That money never makes it down to the teacher. The teacher complains, the AA takes those complaints to the legislature, and then they give more money that goes back into the bureaucratic redundancy and gobbles it all up. And then no money makes it back down to the teachers. So they complain. And what they have is a racket going. And if they actually took care of the teachers, if the AA actually took care of teachers, their business would go away. Right. If, if you had satisfied, happy teachers that were that were being taken care of the way that they should be taken care of and the, the bureaucratic redundancy and superintendents and all that stuff wasn't gobbling up the money that was meant for them and the children in the classrooms, um, then they would stop complaining. And if the teachers stopped complaining, the AEA wouldn't be able to go get more money dumped back into the education thing that's gobbling up all the money. So that same thing, I think, is, is also going on over in this space of I feel like it's called economic development, but it's the thing where we go around courting corporations to move their business to Alabama by building their factory or giving them money or giving them some crazy tax break that no other business in our state would ever get. If you move your business here, we'll do, 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 do. it's like, no, 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 no. Fix our education, 
get our murder rate down, you know, um, fix our education, get our murder rate down and get our taxes lower. You do those three things, you're right, and make it more business friendly for everybody, everybody, not yep. just corporations coming in. If you did those things, literally, we would have to be telling businesses no, right? Like, kind of like Texas is like, okay, we, we've got enough, yeah. right? If we did those things, we would have more businesses than we knew what to do with. But instead, we're going out. We want to keep things as terrible as possible, you know, with, with it being 52nd in math and 50th and everything else in education, taxes that reflect that of a blue state all this other stuff. And we wonder why people aren't moving their corporations here. And they say it's because we're backwards and racist. And then all the ESG people are like, well, I mean, your abortion laws are pretty restrictive. I don't think even, no, that's not what they care about. They care about the tax rate. They care about whether the kids that, you know, the, the, the parents are going to send their kids to these terrible freaking schools. That's what they're concerned about. And if we fixed those things, rather than taking all this money and dumping it into courting a certain business to come here because of a tax rate. So anyway, School choice. It's a topic for another uh, for another episode. Yeah, school choice would go a long way for this state, and it's yeah. in another area where, for some reason, we are way behind all the other red states. Yeah. Well, and the reason is the AEA, flat out. You know, you got you got you have a, a teachers union who's again. It's like, hey, could you imagine Planned Parenthood giving money to Republicans? Like the 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 two don't go together, right? Because because those people don't give money to Republicans, so. I thought was astounding. I have no idea what our audience thought when we told them, but uh, uh, I don't know, nine months ago, we did a big report that showed the amount of money that the, the teachers union was giving Republicans. I was astounded. I'm like teachers union, Republicans, money giving what Republicans taking money from teachers union. What? Uh, and then we did a report last week or the week before where we just, we itemized it and said this legislature that, you know, this legislature, you know, is taking money from the teachers union. And again, maybe it's affecting them. Maybe it's not. I'm not trying to hurl any accusations here, but it's a little bit fishy that we're a conservative state that 78% of the Alabamians, Republican and Democrat want school choice and we can't get it. And we're a Republican supermajority that's taken gobs of like 1.5 million in the last election cycle from a teacher's union and we can't get anything done for education. Well, people forget this is about the children. Yeah. This isn't about teachers. This isn't about school systems. Teachers this and is parents. about educating children. Yes. And if we are going to prioritize our adult politics over the well-being of our children, then there's no hope for us. Amen. So um, that is definitely something that we're going to have to snap out of. If we fixed, if we got school choice and we got a major tax break, a major permanent tax break, which none of those things are in any significant way, you know, KIV is like, oh, well, we we might do a little bitty little tax break there for you. You know, it's like, oh, thanks, governor. And then, you know, you know, they're going to give it because because conservatives are part of my language are so pissed off right now about the state of education and, and the 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 drums of school choice are being pounded every which way. I my prediction is they're going to bring us some just worthless school choice bill that makes the which is what Alabama legislators do. They pass these stupid neutered bills that have a big name on it that makes it sound really good. They pass it. It doesn't do anything for everybody. And then they pat each other on the back. And we're like, yeah, that's right. We're behind the scenes getting stuff done. Look at that. Ugh. Anyway, I'm really passionate about this. I don't know if you can tell. Yeah, I get, no, I get you, going. I get, you should uh, be. I get no, it's going. great. So. We, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it before the next session because it starts late this year. It starts yes, in March. So it we'll does. Have, we'll have plenty so, of time. Yeah, I hope I hope someone comes and does something meaningful. Not the biggest Del Marsh fan in the world. Imagine that. However, the school choice legislation that he proposed last year was freaking fantastic. And it got neutered within like we brought him on the podcast to talk about it 
before we published the podcast 24 hours later, the bill was completely neutered. Isn't that amazing? So anyway, not why we're here. We're here to talk about ESG, but it all goes together. It's hysterical. <laughs> so let's talk about what you guys are doing. So we, we've outlined um, ESG is a problem. Let's talk about what you're doing and, and what was the name of the organization again? The, the, the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. So we instituted something called the Free Enterprise Scholars Program. This is for undergraduates. Now, we already have a master's in economics program that is expressly free market in, in its uh, curriculum. We teach Austrian economics. We teach public choice economics. And every student who goes through our program is fully funded, so they don't pay any tuition or fees. And not just that, but we pay them to come. We actually wow. pay them to be graduate assistants. So you get paid to come get a master's in our program. And that program is very successful. We're doing a great job with it. We needed something for the undergraduates. And Dan Sutter, my colleague, and I read uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's Woke Inc. this summer, and we decided we need to orient this program around this theme of wokeness in corporate America because it is becoming a major problem, whether it's in ESG or whatever, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever facet of wokeness you want to pin on it. Um, but we really want this program to be about business ethics. And what we are attempting to show through extensive readings, books, guest lectures, is the um, unethical behaviors that inhere in this woke movement and to show that people are actually violating ethical principles, whether it's asset management companies breaching fiduciary duties or whether it's companies uh, misreporting or uh, – or, um, are basically doing sort of sleight of hand maneuvers to uh, market themselves as friendly, but in ways that aren't actually in keeping with their practices. Greenwashing is the term that's used for uh, for companies saying all these things to make themselves sound environmentally, environmentally friendly and making a lot of money, and then actually they're harming the environment with what they do. So it's a common thing. Um, so we're having... Um, Students do reading groups. This is all extracurricular, by the way. They don't get any credit, but we do give them right now uh, $500 scholarships uh, per semester. We're hoping that we can increase that amount, and we're pretty confident that we are going to. We've we've talked to some donors who are interested in increasing that scholarship amount so that students who go through this program uh, can be rewarded for what is essentially a non-credit class, yeah. and uh, and it's weekly. We have uh, we've been blessed to have so many people hear about this program because it made national media. I've been on Fox and friends. I've it was profiled in Fox business and written a few op-eds for Fox news now lately. And it's been really exciting because of that attention. We have people who are volunteering to come down and speak to our students. And so we've been able to have weekly speakers. Now that momentum may run out. And so it'd be great to have the funding to continue to bring these sort of high profile speakers down down to campus to meet with our students and have one-on-one -on -one interactions and uh, to really in, engage them in uh, possibilities for the future, internships, jobs, careers, et cetera. And I'm most excited because this is happening in Alabama. It is. Right. Something that's big and it's on the economic front. And we're talking about how, you know, economic development we're all about, right? And yeah. That this is happening and it's not even at the University of Alabama. It's not at Auburn. It's at Troy, right? Yeah. And and that this is in Alabama and it's something that's such a big deal that it's making national news, Fox News. And so finally, there people are shining a light on Alabama for something other than our murder rate or something, right? Because anytime national media talks about Alabama, they go out and find some guy in a trucker hat with no teeth and a wife beater on 
like tell us about, you know, and, and that's how it is. So there's amazing stuff happening in Alabama. And I, and I definitely believe what you guys are doing is that, and I, I don't want to see your guys' momentum run out. I want, I want more people. I want the flame to get bigger. Yes. Uh, I want people to know what you guys are doing and people to get excited about it because, and we believe in competition. We now, want more competitors out there right now. We're the only people because everyone is so afraid to speak out. Nobody's being bold. Nobody's being courageous. It's time to step up. If you're in a university, it's time to step up and do something. We need competition. We we want competition mm. in this space. We don't want to be the only players here. But we, thankfully for us, we were first movers. Yeah. Maybe this will catch on. Maybe there'll be a pattern. But there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of left-wing universities out there. Why would anybody want to go to this university or that university just to go to another Left wing. Why? Why does everyone want to be like everyone else in higher ed? When higher ed is really, really struggling right now, uh, enrollment declines, declines of international enrollment, decline, birth rate declines. You know, it's hard to populate a class, and, yeah, and you're not going to do it by just trying to be like everybody else. You've got to be different. And big ed has gotten it's like too big to fail, and so I think it's great with these smaller universities that don't have the big, you know, are able to innovate and do things like what you guys are doing. I think that's great, and. And one thing, you know, what I, I say, you know, I've got a couple of things. Obviously, we're pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama. Fix and Fortify was our original slogan internally as we created Mission, Vision, Plan, Budget for 1819. We want to fix our state, which is what we're talking about. And then we want to fortify our borders so that we're sovereign. Um, we're not we're not going to sell our sovereignty. We we need to be a sovereign state. The, the people of Alabama have a spirit of sovereignty. We understand what that means, you know, to be self, you know, self um it's the word that I'm looking for, like self-dependent, self-sustaining, self-sufficient, you know, you, that whole, um, um, uh, trying to think of the country boy can survive song very, very well sums up the people of Alabama. We don't need Biden to fix our problems. We don't need these federal dollars to fix our problems, but, um, greedy people got sloppy and started taking federal money because it would have been easier than innovating. And now we're kind of hooked, um, to these federal dollars, which means that we're bowing the knee and kissing the ring of of the the federal leviathan and we need to repent of that we need to turn from that and we need to be pursuing self-sovereignty so we want to fix and fortify um but but the thing i want to hone in on what you just said courage is the great need of the hour courage the beast is not that bad it's like the boogeyman under your bed and then you look under the bed and there's nothing there is a lot of what this esg stuff is yeah they can get loud they can do these things and we've seen a couple things go bad for a few people but, you know, um, Amy Beth Shaver wrote an article on Albert Patterson uh, recently, and I read that, and I just had goosebumps after I read that because this man stood up to quite literally the mob in, um, it's not Alex City, Phoenix City, Phoenix City, Alabama. He ran for attorney general. He was going to stop this corruption from happening. He knew if Alabama, and, and, and specifically Phoenix City, but if Alabama was going to flourish, we couldn't have that kind of corruption going on. He was pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama and he did what it took and he stood them down and they put a gun in his mouth and blew his brains out. Okay. But he stood and then his son went on to become governor and actually put an end to all of that corruption and wickedness. And so we need an Albert Patterson. We need many Albert Pattersons. We need more people like you who have the courage to stand up and do this. Um, courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. Well, it, it, I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I I have this article with me that I wasn't planning on bringing this out. But this is an article by Barry Weiss, who is not a conservative, by yeah. the way, but uh, she wrote this for Commentary Magazine. It says, we got here because of coward, cowardice. We get out with courage. Mm. And this is she's she's talking about specifically wokeness. And yeah. so, again, she is a person of the left, but sees 
the illiberal nature of yeah. wokeness. And she says, in an age of lies, telling the truth is high risk. It comes with a cost, but it is our moral obligation. It is our duty to resist the crowd in this age of mob thinking. It is our duty to think, to think freely in an age of conformity. It is our duty to speak truth in an age of lies. This bravery isn't the last or only step in opposing this revolution. It's just the first. After that, we must, after that must come honest assessments of why America was vulnerable to start with and an aggressive commitment to rebuilding the economy and society in ways that once again offer life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to the greatest number of Americans. But let's start with a little courage. Courage means, first off, the unqualified rejection of lies. Do not speak untruths, either about yourself or anyone else, no matter the comfort offered by the mob. And do not genially accept the lies told to you. If possible, be vocal in rejecting claims you know to be false. Courage can be contagious, and your example may serve as a means of transmission. So, yes, this is what we were thinking with the Johnson Center. Yes, we're going to be first. This is going to be a big risk, but we're going to have courage because there are probably a lot of other people out there who have just been waiting for somebody else to do this. And I know that to be the case because I got so many emails from people all across America, not just corporate executives, but people in the university. They're like, hey, this would never happen at my university, but I really support, I, I thank, thank God you're doing what you're doing. And this is probably somebody who's just quietly marginalized on his or her campus, yep. but sees somebody else taking a stand and thinks, all right, maybe I'll take a stand too. Yeah. People are being held hostage by these lies and, and, and one person having courage to stand. And who knows what might come? It might be a gun in your mouth like Albert Patterson. It might be your business getting canceled. You might lose your job. But then again, maybe it's none of those things and actually we get victory. Or maybe you do die and we do get victory. And it's like these were all things that, that, that people in the past, they, they, those were calculated risks that they were willing to take. People don't even want to like the lot, like losing their job is something that's just unthinkable. But um one of the things, and we can close with this because we're coming right up uh, to the one hour mark. Um, I've told this story probably 15 times on my podcast before, but we were talking about courage and the great need of the hour and founding 1819. Before I started 1819, I was I was going down this path of trying to make a difference, trying to win, trying um, to right the wrongs that I saw just, just everywhere, the wickedness everywhere. And it's just, it's like compounding interest on how crazy it gets year over year. Everyone's like, man, 2020 is bad. I can't wait for 2021 to get here. Like it's just going to get better because it, it switched to 2021. Well, now we're in 2022 and it's crazier, right? It's not going to turn around because the year ended, but it was a story that, that just absolutely emblazoned my spirit and put a fire an unquenchable fire in my chest to pursue um, real justice, not this other thing that people are calling justice, but real, that pursuit of free and flourishing uh, in a free and flourishing Alabama. I was in North Carolina uh, and, and a friend of mine, uh, his name is Scott Brown. He's a pastor in North Carolina. I went to his house um, and uh, his dad is a World War II pilot. He flew a P-51 Mustang in World War II in Iwo Jima. Okay. And it was shot down his P-51 Mustang, he was flying into Iwo Jima, which is super dangerous in its own right. His plane was ripped apart by anti-aircraft artillery rounds, barely missing him, rips his plane to shreds. He crashes into the ocean, somehow doesn't die. He's in enemy waters, you know, floating. And by the grace of God, was rescued by Americans in enemy waters. And then he goes back and gets another plane. Again, I think Iwo Jima was over by the time he got it, but it was on to the next spot in the Pacific Theater. He got another plane and just went and did it again, right? That was what he was made of. So he's 92 years old when I'm um, up at uh, Scott Brown's kind of ranch and, and his dad lives there with him. And I was there for four days. And the first three days I was there, uh, his dad was in a, 
Bill Brown was in a in a wheelchair and he had like one of the little sticks that drove it around and he would just like and then look at me and he would just look at me and I'm like uh you know like you know it was very strange right and he was I don't know if he was sizing me up or if he was just trying to figure out what God wanted him to tell me or what well day four I'm sitting in he kind of had his own living room in the house and I'm sitting in that living room and I'm looking at this big model of a p51 Mustang that he's got hanging that um, some of his friends had given him and I'm looking at it thinking about him being shot down out of the sky and he rolls up to me and uh, I hear him and I and I look down at him and he said Brian there was a time when we did what was right even if they shot bullets at us there's coming a time when you're gonna have to stand up for what's right even if they shoot bullets at you and he turned around and drove off and that changed me forever right because the the what we're up against is is not something that anyone has seen before um, it's not, you know, you look at the beaches of Normandy and you had a foe that was over there. You had the beach and you had gunfire and it was clear that that was the enemy and you had to storm the beach and get up the hill and kill those people. The, the lack of clarity and who the enemy is right now is really, really hard. We know spiritually who the enemy is, but we don't have these clearly drawn battle lines like you do in, in certain wars, but, but the battle is real. And if we're going to have, you know, again, I mentioned I have seven children I, I want to, you know, 20 years from now, when I'm looking my children in the face, my hope is that I leave them a better Alabama than, than, than what I got when I moved here um, and that we win and then we have victory and that everything's really, really good for them. But if it's not, I don't want to be able to look at them in the face and say, you know, I, I want to be able to look at them in the face and say, you know, honey, I did every single thing I possibly could to fight this fight so that you didn't have to, yeah. right? I'm not going to live in such a way as to allow this to be my children's fight. I want this to be my fight. We need to handle this head on, hit this head on now, um, if there's gonna be any hope of, of, of our children inheriting uh, a better Alabama. And you're totally right about that. And that's a wonderful spot to end on because I 100% agree with you. You can't just sit by and do nothing. Yep. It's time to do something. Amen, gets me fired up. All right, well, thank you, Alan, for coming in. Thank Thanks, you for your Brian. time. Thanks and for having me. to my audience, as always, Put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.